The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a pop-up. First base side foul ground playable. Santana makes the catch. The Indians have won the American League pennant. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the seventh consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress throughout the 2017 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for this Monday evening, Memorial Day. And we want to send out good wishes to all of our veterans who enjoyed today along with you and glad to have you along tonight here on ultimatesportstalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell and bringing along Mark Donahue as we talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And Mark, before we get into what has happened with the two teams this week, I got to say it was a lot of fun to be at the Montgomery Inn last Friday or last Monday night and do the show on the road for the first time. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And it's uh, if you folks have not been down to the Montgomery Inn, uh, the boathouse uh, next to the stadium down there is just, uh, I guess, a quarter mile from the stadium. It's, it's certainly worth the trip. And even if Dave and I aren't there, it's worth the trip. <laughs> but if Dave and I are there, it's really worth the trip. It's really worth it then. But the food is yeah. great. It's a great view. And if you've not uh, partaken of that, if you're a uh, either a, a local individual uh, who goes downtown a lot, I'm sure you know about the boathouse, but if you're from out of town, uh, make a trip because it, it's it's really a neat place to go. And we're planning on doing it later on in the year. We'll talk more about that as it gets closer and closer, but maybe sometime in August we'll be able to do that again. And also want to thank our guest last week, Tom Giffen, who came up from Florida and joined us on the show last week. And he was just outstanding, Mark. It was good to hear from him and his thoughts not only about adult baseball, but his, th- his thoughts on the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and we'll get into more of that uh, later on today. But, uh, yeah, we had a lot of interesting comments from Tom. And, uh, you know, amateur baseball, not not everybody can play big league baseball. Let's face the facts. We're, we're not gifted in that area, most of us. But everybody can play baseball. So I think what we learned last week, no matter how old you are, where you are, it doesn't matter. If you want to play baseball, there's a league and a team out there for you. And we're not talking about softball. We're talking about baseball. And uh, nothing against softball players. Uh, but uh, there's something about playing baseball that gets into your blood, and it's kind of hard to get out. Mark, a couple of our headline stories as we head into tonight's show and into today's action. The Indians came into today's action two games behind Minnesota in the American League Central with a record of 25 and 23, Minnesota 26 and 20 in the Central and the Indians were two and a half games on top of the White Sox in second place. Meanwhile, the Reds came into today's action as they go to Toronto tonight and has started a three-game series with the Blue Jays. They're just 24 and 25, Mark, two and a half games out of first place behind Milwaukee, and I know we keep saying it, but if you would have said that's where the Reds are going to be at the beginning of the season. When we got to this point, I think a lot of people would have taken that. Yeah, particularly taken that, uh, given what's happened with the other teams in the division. Uh, Chicago has just lost three straight in Los Angeles, and I think if you're a, if you're a Cub fan, you got to be a little worried at this point. 
Uh, they're not getting quality pitching. Uh, they were shut out twice by the Dodgers uh, over the weekend. They're, they're not hitting like they did last year. And I think it just proves how difficult it is to repeat uh, in, in Major League Baseball because teams go to school on you. They go to school on what made you successful. And right now, I, the Cubs are not anywhere near the dominant team they were a year ago. Now, who knows what's going to – there's a lot of games left to be played. But right now, the league has seemed to figure out – and they figured out the offensive side of this more than anything. The Cubs just aren't hitting. And with that lineup, uh, that, that's, that's difficult to understand. But it just shows you good pitching and good coaching of pitching will beat good hitting any time. And another thing with the Indians, another one of our headline stories – is the fact that Danny Salazar, who was two and five on the year with an ERA over six, he's been relegated to the bullpen, Mark. They're going to try what they've done with Trevor Bauer a couple of times, put him in the bullpen and see if he can't work his troubles out there. That's going to start on Wednesday. He had just an abysmal start on Saturday this past weekend. The Indians still managed to win the ball game, but it was not a good start for Salazar. And the wake, uh, uh, Mike Clevenger has pitched. The Indians have got to find a way to get him into the rotation. Josh Tomlin pitched a complete game victory yesterday, so he seems to be settled in. Bauer's done a fine job. But another thing, Mark, is that Corey Kluber, he pitched five innings for Akron Canton on Saturday. And he went five innings and only threw 47 pitches. He struck out eight, didn't give up a run, only one hit. So Kluber is slated to start on Thursday of this week and come off the DL. That's going to be a boost to the Indians also. But they need Salazar to really stabilize this rotation. Yeah, that's that's the great thing about the Indians. Uh, they're off to, I think, a, a, a worse start than everybody would have anticipated for that team. I mean, I would expect the, the Indians at this point to be eight to ten games over 500, and they're not there. Uh, but you know, I think we've we've overlooked something this year, especially in that American League Central with Minnesota. I mean, they're playing good ball, and I, I don't think they're going to win the division. But uh, you know, with the White Sox and Cleveland and Minnesota in that division, uh, even though Kansas City's down this year, uh, that that. It's going to be interesting with Minnesota because they've got some really good young talent, and I'm particularly interested to see if they can hold on and be competitive all year because they pretty much were where the Reds are now uh, a year ago or two years ago. The, they they got high draft picks for a couple of years. They signed some good players. They got some good young talent, and it's be, it's beginning to show on the field, and it's beginning to show in the win loss column. So I, I, I don't think Minnesota is an aberration. I think they're a pretty good ball club. Mark, what happens to a pitcher? I mean, for example, Danny Salazar. He seems to throw pretty well throughout the first four or five innings, and then he just loses it, just totally loses everything. What, what happens to a pitcher when that's going on? Well, there's, there's a couple things that could be, happen. Of course, every, every pitcher is different. But a lot of pitchers fall in love with what got them through the first three or four innings. Let's say they start off with a fastball, and they're getting outs. Uh, their first pitch is a, you know, a, a fastball down the middle. 
They get ahead of hitters. Well, they keep doing that into the fourth, fifth, sixth innings. Well, the hitters catch on to that. And rather than break it up, I mean, a lot of good pitchers, if they've started off, say, with their fastball uh, on the first pitch, they'll, they'll change that up. They'll go to the slider on the first pitch. They'll go through a changeup. They'll mix it up because these hitters are so good that if you give them a pattern, they will quickly catch on to that. And that's I've seen that happen a lot, especially with young pitchers. And, and their excuse is, well, hey, I went through the lineup the first time. I got nine guys in a row out. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, the more expensive, uh, more experienced pitchers know that's not a wise move. <laughs> so that could be one thing. And it, it, other thing, it, it depends on, you know, the, the 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 balls in play that that sneak through the infield. That's that's a that's a luck quotient into baseball. And sometimes pitchers, their stats belie how well they're pitching. Because a ground ball up the middle that sneaks through and drives in two runs could just have as easily been fielded, thrown to second for a force, and the inning is over. So I, I don't look at a lot of stats. I look how hard these pitchers are getting hit. And to bring up a sore subject, uh, Bronson Royal, his last outing, he not only gave up three home runs, uh, he now leads the world in home runs, he was getting plastered on almost every pitch. And that's what I look at, is how hard, what's the exit velocity off the bat that a pitcher, he's throwing up an 80-mile-an-hour fastball and is coming back at him at 105. Uh, you've got a problem. I don't care if he's getting it out or not, because the out might be a line drive to the center field fence that the center fielder drags down. So I, I don't, every pitcher's different. But a lot of it has to do with their patterns of pitching rather than their stuff alone. Mark, going into Sunday's action, the headline story tonight for the Reds would be the fact that they're the only team in Major League Baseball with four players that have 11 or more home runs now. There's Duval, there's Shebler, there's Votto, and I can't remember the fourth one now. I believe it. I believe it's, it's Suarez, Suarez, isn't it? Yeah, it's Suarez. And I was watching that team yesterday play, and I try to be objective when I watch the Reds play. But I'll tell you what, when you get Billy Hamilton at the top of the lineup, and you've got Zach Cozart hitting 350, and then you have Votto, Duvall, Shepler, and Suarez up behind, I mean, that is a scary lineup. I don't care who you, who you're pitching. And I think the Indians saw that over the weekend, or beginning of the week last week. That team can hit, and that's why it's kind of frustrating for Reds fans, because four of their five projected starters are on the DL, and their fifth projected starter is pitching for Miami right now. <laughs> so uh, that, it's amazing that they are where they are. They're only two and a half games out of first place, two back in the loss column with a pitching staff, a starting pitching staff, with an ERA just under seven. That's hard to believe that they are where they are in the standings. And, you know, I've said it all all along, if they can stay close until June 1st, with Homer, Homer Bailey and uh, the, the other two guys coming back, uh, the Reds could be tough. If those pitchers are back to the capabilities that they had before they got injured and. You know, that's probably not going to happen. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I don't think Di Scafani, uh is going to. He's probably the guy who's going to be come back, coming back last. But uh, you know, if the Reds have to make a move to get a starting pitcher or two, or, or take a chance and bring up somebody from Double A, because that's where their talent is. They've got some guys who can throw, who are just killing it down in Double A. And do, so, you, do you take a chance and bring that uh, them up? To complement what you just brought up is an offensive juggernaut right now. This team is on a pace to hit 225 home runs this year, and there's no easy out. You've got Devin Mezzarocco, who's hitting close. I think he's hitting 280 now, something like that. Uh, he's batting eighth in that lineup. I mean, that's how. And the and the other thing, Dave, is their bench offensively is producing. And and there, there's no easy out on that on that 25 man roster. Well, the Indians and the Reds played four played three games last week. They were slated to play four. They played on Wednesday night up in Cleveland, and then Thursday's game was rained out. So they actually played only three games. Now that game from Thursday has been rescheduled. I believe it's going to be played on July the 24th, and that's when the Reds will just head up to Cleveland and play. One game. I did get to see my matchup, Mark, a couple of times with Billy Hamilton against the Indians catchers. And the Indian catchers threw him out 50% of the time. He was one for two in stolen bases. Yeah, I mean, that, your, your catcher, uh, which one it was that threw him out? John Gomes. Yeah, I mean, he's got a really quick release. And they, they were keeping him in check. But Billy Hamilton, you know, he's going to, I don't care who the catcher is, uh, there's only so much time that a catcher has to make a perfect throw. And Billy Hamilton, he's going to steal on anybody a high percentage of the time. I don't care who it is. So everything has to go into play to stop him. But again, with Hamilton at the top of that lineup and, and Zach Cozart, who's a really good number two hitter, it, it's, it's tough for pitchers. And if, and if Hamilton can, you know, if he can hit 260, 270, uh, he's a, as an exciting player as there is in baseball. And it, it's amazing on that play he scored from first on. Uh, did you did you think that Brantley played that ball well? No, no, I think he was trying to end the ball game because that was that was going to be the final out. He comes in, he catches that, the game is over, uh, and then he lost it. He had no idea if it got by him. He didn't realize that he had knocked it down and kept it in front of him. And that was the problem with the whole play. Michael just, just lost. If he picks up that ball immediately, Hamilton stops at third. But just that split second and how fast Hamilton is in that game on Wednesday night in which Hamilton scored the winning run in the top of the ninth is what we're talking about. Uh, when he lost sight of the ball, had no idea where it was, even though it was just a couple feet in front of him. He had absolutely no chance to get Hamilton once that happened. Yeah, that that was an amazing play. That's probably the biggest win the Reds have gotten this year to come back and do that. And I, I saw in the paper, I, it was well over 100 games since the Indians lost a lead in the ninth inning. Uh, so that that's a that's a rarity what happened when the Reds came back and scored two runs in the ninth against the Indians. And uh, that doesn't happen very often. Mark, I, I'm i going to say something here I don't think you're going to agree with, but a lot of people, including me, could make the argument 
that Billy Hamilton is the most valuable player on the Reds team. Yeah, I don't. I don't agree with that. Uh, I think he's a, a very good complementary player, and especially with a team like this, that's got so much depth in their lineup, that that Billy Hamilton becomes more valuable because he doesn't have to hit 300 or 320 to be valuable. He can hit 240, 250, and be valuable because you know basically, I think he's got what 26 stolen bases so far this year. Well, that's like 26 doubles. He gets on base, and, you know, it's a good chance he's going to steal second and a real good chance he's going to score from there. I, but, but, but this team, uh, because of all their power, and, and it looks like um, Adam Duvall, he's on a pace to drive in 130 runs. So that he that's why Hamilton is so valuable. That there would be teams I don't think Billy Hamilton would be as valuable. Oh, I disagree. I think Hamilton makes the rest of that Reds lineup better because all they get to see is fastballs when Hamilton is on base. Pitchers don't want to throw a curveball. They don't want to throw a slider. They don't want to throw one in the dirt because they know Hamilton can not only steal second, but he could steal third. He could take third if the ball gets by the catcher. He could, you know, on that play that he did on on a Wednesday night, Mark, where he scored from first base, that's something that he could do on a pass ball. I've seen Kenny Lofton do it from second, and Billy Hamilton's faster than Kenny Lofton. I think Zach Cozart's hitting three fifty because of where Hamilton is in the batting order right now. You leave that hole open, and I've seen Cozart just hit bleeders, through the hole between first and second this year. He's probably done that, I'm going to say, at least four times that I can remember off the top of my head to add to his batting total. Now, now, granted, Cozart, he had a heck of a game on Saturday. I think he was four for four, had two doubles, a home run, and a single, came a triple away from hitting for the cycle. But I'll tell you what, when you look at this Hamilton and you see when he's on base – that all of these hitters, while he's on base, are just going to see fastballs. It makes them doubly tough and makes them a better hitter. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, but you're making a statement that he's the most valuable player on the Reds, and I don't think yeah, he I is. Yeah, I think he is. Well, I disagree. I don't think he is. I think you have Duvall with 41 RBIs is arguably better. You've got Joey Votto, who has a four. Well, he wouldn't have 41 RBIs if Hamilton isn't at the top of the order. He'd have a lot of RBIs because he's hitting a lot of home runs. And the same with, with Shevler. Shevler's got 15 home runs. So it doesn't matter if Billy Hamble is on base or not. They're hitting a lot of home on runs. On fastballs. What? On fastballs. But that, that has nothing to – Shevler is hitting six in the lineup. Billy Hamilton has no uh, impact on, on Shevler hitting six in the lineup. And he's, he's got mostly – you know, he, he has 15 home runs, but he only has 30-some RBIs. So he's not hitting with a lot of guys on base. So Hamilton's not helping Shevler. Who he's helping is probably the most is uh, Zach Cozart. But don't forget, look at Billy Hamilton's on base percentage. If he get, if he gets his on base percentage up to 350, yeah, I think you can make an argument he's one of the more valuable players. But Billy is he, he's not a finished product yet. He, he can create havoc. I, I'm, you know, I'm all for it, but he's not valuable when he's hitting 210, 220 and he's getting on base only, you know, 25% of the time. He, once he learns the strike zone a little better and gets on base, yeah, he's, he's a valuable component to that team, 
But right now, the Reds are doing it with power. They're not doing it with speed. All right, so we've got the Indians who are in second place, two games behind Minnesota. You've got the Reds who are in third place, two and a half games behind Milwaukee in the National League Central. So tell me this, are you more surprised as we get into this Memorial Day weekend at where the Indians stand or the Reds stand? The Reds. I think the Indians, uh, the Indians aren't playing bad ball. Uh, they haven't got it together yet, but they're right there. I mean, I think the Indians are two games back. Uh, I think they're the best team in the division. That hasn't changed. They've had some pitching issues with injuries. Uh, so if I'm an Indians fan, I'm not worried about it. I, I'd be, I'm, frankly, I'd be, if I was a Cub fan, I'd be more worried. But the Reds right now, I think, are uh, on the verge of, of building something pretty exciting. And don't forget, they get their number two draft pick in two weeks. Uh, a big question who they're going to pick. But the, the team, and I'm so glad they did not trade Duvall over the season, be, over the offseason. Because he, th- this guy, I mean, you saw him play three games, Dave, but I, I've been down there a few times. This guy, this guy can hit 50 home runs. He is incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. He's got a, he's got a short swing. And when you've got Shebler hitting behind him, who leads the league in home runs, by the way, or maybe second now, uh, you got Suarez behind him, uh, you got Mezzarocco behind him, uh, he's seeing a lot of pitches. And you got Joey Votto in front of him. So, and Billy Hamilton in front of him. He's in a great spot, but, uh, he, he's hitting lasers right now. And, uh, uh, I really like this, this power approach the Reds are taking. All right. So the Reds are behind Milwaukee in the National League Central. The Indians are behind Minnesota in the American <laughs> League Central. Which team surprises you more? Minnesota or Milwaukee? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I think Milwaukee benefited from, uh, that, that guy they signed who hit 13 home runs in April. I forget his name already. He, he's only hit two since then. Uh, I think Minnesota's a better team. Uh, they, they got more depth in their pitching and their bullpen. Uh, Milwaukee, right now what's happening in the Central, uh, the Central Division teams are beating each other up. And they're all kind of good. Uh, even Pittsburgh, I think they're only four games out, uh, and they've lost two or three key players. Uh, and Pittsburgh is still in the hunt. So what that means is, I think with Minnesota in the Central, along with Cleveland and the White Sox, it's possible you could have two playoff teams in that division. I don't see two playoff teams in the National League Central, I, because I think uh, if, if a team in the Central, National League Central wins 86 games, that's going to be a lot. Uh, so you could have a lot of teams really close, but that means the National League West, you got some really good teams out there in the National League West. So it's likely you're going to have two playoff teams from the West, maybe three. And I don't, so I think Milwaukee has, um, I don't, I don't think Milwaukee is going to be around that much longer where they are right now. I really don't think Minnesota is either. I think the Indians, if they can get on a hot streak here, win seven of eight, maybe eight of ten, and and take a stranglehold on this division, I think the rest of the teams are going to fall off to the wayside. You know, Kansas City kind of got hot there for a little while and then fell back behind. It seems like every time 
they get around to their fourth or fifth starter, they run into a problem. And then you've got the fact that Detroit just cannot figure out what type of a ball club they are going to be. Yeah, what's happening with the Tigers? I mean, you look at their pitching and, and their hitting. I mean, that it, isn't it a surprise to people in the American League that that team is where they are right now? No, I don't think it's a surprise. I think the thing about the Tigers is they just cannot figure out what they are. Uh, you know, they rely so much on Cabrera and Victor Martinez that they just don't know. And now Kinsler's out for a little while, so I think you're going to see the Tigers fall off the wayside. Plus the fact that they just don't have that dominant bullpen pitcher, Mark. They've never been able to find one guy that they could rely upon to get an out when they needed it. And I think that has really been a detriment to the Tigers and Brad Osmus as manager of the Tigers ever since he took over about six years ago. He's never been able to find that dominant bullpen pitcher. And, you know, they've had, they've had some, some great starting pitching. They've really had some great starting pitching. I mean, going back to Porcello, you know, with Verlander and all of these guys that they have lost via free agency or trades, they've really passed some great players through that organization. But the problem is right now, they don't know if they're a home run hitting team. They don't know if they're a base hitting team. They don't know if they're a pitching team. I just don't think they're, they're I think they're a team without an identity. Yeah, that, that's one thing. Getting back to the Reds and, and comparing them, say, to a Detroit, uh, the Reds right now, in, in just about every facet of their organization, at least at the major league level, they're, they're a pretty solid organization. They, you know, on the field, the Reds have good speed. They have excellent defense. They hit with power. They're getting great bullpen work. The only thing they don't have is starting pitching. And if that comes around, uh, the Reds could be a team that, that could be around at the end of the year. And, and I tell you, if nothing else, the Reds are not a team you want to play. If they get their starting pitching back with the hitting they've got right now, uh, you know, the, the, they could make a run. And I'll tell you, it reminds me of the 2010 team. Uh, when they got on that run where they won the division three years, got in the playoffs three out of four years, it, it, it feels like that. They have a lot of pieces. Of course, that team had great starting pitching, and they didn't have a lot of power compared to this team. But the Reds aren't that far off. And, you know, I was comparing the Reds with the Indians last week, and, you know, it, it's you look at the lineups, and compare player player position position with Cleveland offensively, and the Reds I think win that battle more often than not. Mark, the Indians this weekend introduced the statue of Frank Robinson as a player manager for the Indians back in 1975. Of course, he was the first black manager. In baseball, you know, at the time, Mark, I remember when they hired him and they were coming off a very, very good 1974 season. One of the few seasons that they had where they showed some promise during the 70s and the 80s, with 86 being the other season that they they showed some promise. But that 74 team, they showed some promise and had Ken Aspermani. I remember him as the manager of that team. And at the end of the year, 
Gabe Paul and Phil Sagey decided that they were going to make a change, and they went out towards the end of September and picked up Frank Robinson. And everybody knew at that point in time that it was the beginning of the end for Aspermani, and it was as Robinson was named player manager during the off season for the Indians at that time. Mark, talk a little bit about Frank Robinson because you saw him more as a player than I did, but was you know I, I've seen him more as a manager. I thought the only time that he really was able to show that he had the managerial skills needed to win in major in the major leagues was during his last stint, which was with Washington. I thought he took the Nationals and he did a pretty good job with them. But as a player, he was almost second to none. Yeah, he he, he was an underrated superstar, if there is such a thing. I, I compare him to Roberto Clemente. Uh, he could do a lot of stuff that Clemente did, but with more power. Uh, I saw Frank Robinson play probably a thousand games. He's my favorite player. He, he and Veda Pinson when they were together. And, and Frank Robinson, he was fearless. He crowded the plate. He got hit more than anybody else in the league during that period of time. And this is before they had a lot of, you know, helmets. I mean, they they were wearing baseball hats at that time. And he would challenge the pitchers. And if they throw at him, he'd jump up. And on the next pitch, he'd hit it over the scoreboard. Uh, yeah, he, he was uh, he was a guy who had speed. He had he played very good defense. He had a great arm. Uh, he could steal a base for you. Hit 340. Uh, there weren't many weaknesses in his game, let's put it that way. And I think Willie Mays and Hank Aaron overshadowed him in, in many ways, but Frank Robinson was as good as there was. Now, he was also what you know, I, I affectionately call a hard ass, and he expected everybody to play like he did, both talent and in, in determination and grit and hard work and fearlessness and all those things. And frankly, he was a tough manager to play for because of that, because he he compared everybody else on the team to the way he was as a player. Well, very few players could could match up to Frank Robinson as a player. And I think he got frustrated. And I I heard when he was managing that he was he was kind of a, a hard guy to play for. You know, he told a story this weekend when during the Indians game, when he was on one of the broadcasts on Fox Sports, that Phil Segge, he went up and talked to him before opening day. And, of course, the most famous thing is that Frank did for the Indians was, after becoming manager, he put himself in the lineup on opening day and hit a home run in his first at bat. Yeah. And, I mean. and that was, you know, that was one of the great things that he did. But he didn't want to, he didn't want to put himself in the lineup, Mark. He said he didn't play very many spring training games. He had very little at bats. For the Indians during spring training that year, he wasn't going to have himself in the opening day lineup, and he went up and talked with Phil Segi a couple hours before the game, and Segi said, "You're in the lineup, right?" And Robinson said, "No, I'm, I don't have myself." And he goes, "Put yourself in the lineup." He said, "The people are here to see you, and you always rise to the occasion." And sure enough, he did. But that was the that was the key right there, was that. Robinson was not hired by the Indians at the time that he was hired to be a manager. He was hired to be the sideshow and sell tickets. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it, it probably didn't do him any good to manage when he did with the Indians. I think he needed some more time in the minor leagues to manage and, and learn how to handle. You know, Dave, as we've said before, baseball is a simple game to manage. It's, it's, it, you don't need to be a Ph.D. To, to manage a baseball game. What you need a Ph.D. for is to be a psychologist and manage 25 players. That's, that's what you need help with. Uh, with bench coaches and, and been around the game for a while, it's hard to make a mistake in baseball. You can be second-guessed, but you can always justify your, your, your decisions. But managing 25 young players, particularly players, I think it's even more difficult now, is the hard part. And managers who stay along, stay around a long time are the guys who are able to figure that out. And Frank, I don't think, did himself any favors by coming up as quickly as he did. He should have spent three or four more years in the minor leagues managing players. Do you really think he'd have gone to the minors and managed? Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I doubt he would have. But I, I think that's that's my point, though. He would have been a better manager when he came up had he done mm-hmm. so. And I think today I have not seen – I don't – I'm thinking about Don Mattingly, how long – uh, if he went to the minors or not, or did he just go right into the manager's position? But um, I don't care who you are. You've got to learn how to, to coalesce these 25 players into a team. And if you don't, you're going to have factions. You're going to have guys who just, you know, will not run through a wall for you. And, uh, you know, Frank Robinson, I think in retrospect, he even admit today, had he spent three or four years in the minors and worked his way up, he would have been a much better manager when he came up. You know, Henry Aaron even came to the celebration on Saturday where they unveiled the statue for Frank. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, Hank Aaron, one of the greats of all time, you know, the former home run king, he's not looking good, Mark. He's getting up there in age, and he's having some problems even getting around. You know, it's funny. I, I met Hank Aaron when I was, let me see, I must have been... 15, I think, something like that, down at Crosley Field. And I was sitting in the front row, and he walked by. I just stuck my hand out. And he was, I think it was right before the game started, and he shook my hand. And all I remember was his hand was like a ham. It, it was it was so thick and heavy and, and not, you know, I play basketball. My hand's reasonably, I can palm a basketball, but he was, he was so much bigger, and he wasn't a tall guy. He was a little guy, maybe 5'10", but his forearms, and it didn't look like he had a wrist. But I remember thinking, my God, that guy is so incredibly strong. And you could tell the way he whipped that bat around. Hank Aaron was, he was a hitter unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, he, he had a different swing than Frank Robinson did. He had a different swing than Willie Mays. Almost kind of a loop in his swing. But it was so powerful because of those hands and wrists. And if I if, if I'd never shaken his hand, I, I wouldn't have realized why. But once I did, I realized why he could hit a ball so far. What was it, 1965, that the Reds traded Frank Robinson to Baltimore for Milt Pappas? Why? Why was that trade made by the Reds? It was after the 65 season in my first year in college, and I read about it. And the, the manager, general manager, Bill DeWitt, I think it was, said he was, he was only 30 years old. He said he's an old 30. And the Reds get Milt Pappas, Jack Balshan, 
and a guy named Simpson, who was an outfielder, none of whom ever did anything for the Reds. And, of course, <laughs> you know what Frank Robinson did. Uh, MVP after he left, uh, Hall of Famer, et cetera, et cetera. Worst trade, maybe maybe the worst trade in baseball history, if not certainly in the top five. But as a Reds fan, I was devastated when, when that when that happened. So the reason was he was an old 30. That is exactly the quote they used, that they didn't think he would be uh, a, a long-term player. But what really happened was between uh, – it, it was I think earlier in the East. You have to remember that Frank Robinson, like, like Jackie Robinson – a lot of people in Cincinnati did not like the idea of black players in Cincinnati. And I remember when that hit the paper, uh, there was a lot of, of, you know, throw him out of town. We don't want this, that guy here. A lot of racial stuff. And I think that had a lot to do with it. And, and Frank Robinson should never have been traded. And the reasons he were traded, I'm afraid, were not altogether uh, just because they wanted to get three new players. Well, you know, now he's in the Indians Hall of Fame. His number has been retired, number 20. It will hang above Progressive Field for the rest of time now as he is immortalized by the Cleveland Indians. Mark, not many people have had that happen. You know, and we move on to what's going on with Pete Rose. Not only is he getting a statue in front of Cincinnati and being placed into the Reds Hall of Fame. Mark, I just found out this weekend he's being an inducted into the Philadelphia Phillies Hall of Fame. Now, I know he was very instrumental with the Phillies in winning a World Series in 1980, but, boy, the Phillies are looking upon him as he was extremely instrumental with their franchise during the five years he was there. You know, there there are certain times and certain players that change a franchise, and I think Pete wrote... Rose did change the Phillies. I mean, don't forget that that team was a, a perennial last place team for decades, uh, up until, you know, Mike Schmidt and, and, and that group came together. But, you know, Frank Robinson too, obviously, is in the Reds Hall of Fame. But, uh, yeah, that, that is a little unusual. I think he had close to uh, a thousand hits with the Phillies, uh, when he came up, um, with Philadelphia. And he played for Philly for, let me see, one, two, three, four, five years. And uh, 300, 400. He only had like seven or 800 hits for Philadelphia. I happen to have his stats right here. Uh, and, you know, people forget he played for Montreal as well. So Pete played with three different teams. But uh, with Philadelphia in 1979, he had 208 hits, 185 in 1980, 140 in 81, 172 in 82, and 121 in 83. So you know, 79 was a great year. He had two or three other good years, but you're right. He didn't, it didn't seem statistically that he would warrant uh, into their Hall of Fame. But I think it's because they won a world championship, uh, and, and he, he really was an instrumental part of that. And, you know, another thing, too, Mike Schmidt will say this. Mike Schmidt will come right out and tell you that Pete Rose changed Mike Schmidt's career because Pete Rose – showed him how to work and how to take advantage of every at-bat. 
Yeah, uh, I, I played with Mike uh, back in the day in, uh, in high school and college, and he was always a, a singles hitter until he got to OU. And I remember between – I played with him, I forget what year it was, 69 or 70, and the next year he came back and he was a different player. Uh, he got into weights. He, you know, he, he, he moved from second to third base. He was just a bigger starter. And, man, he started pounding the ball, and we all knew he was going to get drafted. But uh, he, he he had mentioned many times that Pete had a bigger impact on his his career and his life uh, than any player or any manager who he had interfaced with his career. You know, and that, of course, came in, the, in that World Series with Pete, that infamous catch that he made when Bob Boone went over near the Kansas City dugout to try to catch the foul ball. And it popped out of Bob Boone's glove, and Pete was right there to catch it about knee high. And, you know, that one there seemed to turn that whole series. You know, it's funny, looking at these stats with, with Pete Rose, and, you know, I, I, you talk about why Frank Robinson was. Why was. Just because the Reds didn't want to sign him to a long term contract? Because. When he left his last full year in Cincinnati, he had nine hits. And that broke a string where he had three consecutive years over 200 hits. And his first year in Philadelphia, he had 208. His next year, 185. There was no diminution in Pete Rose's ability. And I, 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 I know why they traded Frank Robinson. I never heard why they traded You know, I think Dick Wagner was intent at that time, Mark. I think he was really intent upon breaking that team up and, and rebuilding it. Yeah, but, you know, in 79, when the Reds got beat by the Pirates in the playoffs, they, they, the Reds won the division. I mean, they were still a very good ball club. Mm-hmm. And then they traded Pete. They traded Tony. Uh, I think they traded Tony after the 77 season, uh, during the 77 season. So, that team had a lot of horsepower left in it, and I wonder what would have happened had they kept that team together. I, I'm guessing the only reason they traded Pete and Tony was economic, that they were making too much money. Because the Reds. Why did, why did they let Sparky go? Well, yeah, that's, you know, I've talked about that before. I mean, <laughs> that, that was a, the biggest shocker of all. You know, yeah. why, why would you trade or get rid of Sparky Anderson? Uh, it, it would be interesting to hear now, in retrospect, what what the, the defense of that was. Uh, I, again, I think that was Dick Wagner that did that. Uh, I, I don't know why. I mean, he he could have stayed with Cincinnati for another ten years, and all he did was go to Detroit and win another World Championship. Mark, over the weekend, a famous Philadelphia Philly pitcher, Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Bunning, passed away. 85 years old, pitched several years for the Phillies. And then after his career, he became a U.S. Senator from the state of Kentucky. Mark, he grew up just south of Cincinnati and went on to an outstanding major league career. Like we said, he he pitched for four major league teams. He's in the Hall of Fame, most notably the Phillies, the Detroit Tigers from 55 through 71, threw a no-hitter in 58, 
for the Tigers against the Boston Red Sox. He won more than 100 games in each league, notching 118 in the American, 106 in the National, and marked to a career record of 224 wins, 184 losses, nine-time All-Star, 2,855 strikeouts, but it took the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee in 96 to put him in the Hall of Fame. We talked about this last week. I'm going to get into it again this week, but before we do that, Jim Bunning was an outstanding pitcher and, and an outstanding you know, you, Yeah, he was all those things. And the problem with Jim Bunning, and the reason I think he was looked over or passed over for so long, is what was his win-loss record again? 224 and 100 and... Let me bring it back up here. 185? 24 and 184. Yeah. Well, that's that's not a very good winning percentage. And and the reason was he pitched with a lot of crappy teams. Uh, but Jim Bunning was, a, you know, you know, I've talked before about great pitchers. Uh, he had an unbelievable curveball. He was hard to hit. Didn't didn't throw that hard. But if he had pitched on a better team, if he had pitched on, on a competitive team during his career, he would have easily won 300 games. With his stuff, and I think his his Hall of Fame credentials would have been, you know, seen much earlier. But with that win loss record, it doesn't jump out. You have to look at the secondary statistics, and, and the innings pitched, and the strikeouts, and if they if they did a whip on him, uh, I'm sure he had standards. But you know, he, he's the kind of guy you and I were talking about last week. He was a, he was a pitcher. He wasn't a thrower. And, and, and he unfortunately, or he would have won at least three. Yeah, he was he was an outstanding pitcher, and he also served in the U.S. Senate from 1999 through 2011. Introduced several bills while he was a U.S. senator from the state of Kentucky. So he was not only quite a person on the field, but he was quite the person, as we said off the field, and he died on Saturday at the age of 85, so our condolences to his family. All right, as we take a look at what the Indians and the Reds have going on for the rest of this week, of course, the Reds and the Indians opened up Memorial Day weekend this past, or I should say today, at the Indians were at home and took on the Oakland A's and won that ball game. But then the Indians, throughout the rest of the week, they've got Oakland for the next couple of days as they take them on tomorrow and Wednesday night. And then the Indians will have Thursday, they will play Oakland also, and that will be a noon start. That'll be a businessman special for the Indians as they take on Oakland. And then they go on the road this weekend, and they'll be playing at Kansas City to take on the Royals on a three-game set in Kansas City. Meanwhile, the Cincinnati Reds, well, not only are they opening up a three-game set against Toronto tonight as they take on the Blue Jays in Rogers Stadium, they'll get Thursday off, and then they'll play Atlanta for three games. That'll be on Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. That's going to do it for tonight's Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, sort of an abbreviated version on this Memorial Day weekend. Glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com. We will be talking with you again next Monday night at 9 o'clock, and that will be 
right back here from the beautiful and palatial ultimatesportstalk.com radio studios. And we'll be doing that again next Monday night at 9 o'clock here on ultimatesportstalk.com. So be sure to join us then. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Hope you had a happy Memorial Day weekend, everyone. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock. Have a good week, everybody.